So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open to, to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and Paul's going to come and read that for us. Thank you, Paul. It can be found in the church Bible on page 272. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person, has, if the person said to him, let the fat beef burn first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with content. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she was when she went up with her husband to the, offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Eli was very old and heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons. The report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go to my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ethod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented to the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? 
Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that members of your family will minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever see, will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sat, sap your strength and all your descents will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your sons, Hophni and Phineas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one, always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Thank you very much. Do keep that bit of the Bible open. That will help us. Uh, because... A bit like that man of God turning up and saying things. Um, we need to listen to what God has to say. So if we have our Bibles open to that, that would be great. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that your word would have the same kind of impact that it did then on that day. That it would come in and change things. It would challenge things. It would encourage. It would rebuke. That we would listen. That we would be changed. So please would now not just be a time of uh, looking at some words and finding out what they mean, but would we be very aware that you are addressing us through your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's the day of the big match. Before the players get on the field, they're expecting a rough time. They've heard about the opposition, that they're a nasty lot, they're hard to play against, they're fond of a good foul that the fans, the opposition fans are going to shout abuse at you whenever you're on the ball. They know it's going to be a hard time. They're ready for it. And out they go onto the pitch. And it's their own fans booing them. Doesn't take long before they're 1-0 down. Who scored the goal? Their own goalkeeper. He just threw it into his own nets. Says, I'll do it again. What is going on? Suddenly a horrible bone-crunching tackle comes in from behind. They're lying on the floor going, what on earth happened? It was their own manager ran onto the pitch just to break their legs. And then the referee comes up and gives the injured player a red card. You think, what is happening here? I was expecting it to be hard. I was expecting there to be opposition. But not from these people. Not like this. Something has gone very wrong, hasn't it? When the people in charge are corrupt, when the rules are being ignored, when the people who are supposed to help are the ones who are hurting each other. 
We expect opposition, but we don't expect it from our own team. And today's passage in 1 Samuel is a bit like that. All this opposition coming from, a, from a, an, un, an unexpected place. It's set in a very dark time in Israel, all kinds of things going wrong. But last week we saw about a lady called Hannah who was praying for a baby. And when that baby was born, Hannah gave thanks to God because this was going to be the turning point. This was going to be somehow the dawn of a new era, a glimmer of light in the dark. And in her song of praise in chapter 2, she talked about enemies, enemies being overthrown. So proud, arrogant, wicked people that God is going to bring down. And so as we read on in 1 Samuel, we should be expecting some baddies. We should be expecting some opposition. It's set at the time of the judges, so maybe it's going to be an invading army or something like that, or uh, an oppressive foreign power. Maybe the worship of a pagan god is being foisted on the people. That happened a lot then. But that's not where the problem lies. The tackles are coming in from our own team. Hannah had left her young lad Samuel in the care of Eli the priest. That's where we left them last week. He's going to be brought up in the tabernacle, serving God, learning to follow him. He must be in really safe hands then. But now look how our passage starts in verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. So we're introduced to the baddies. And they're not foreign powers. They're not pagan gods. They're fellow Israelites. Worse still, they are the priests. They're the spiritual leaders of God's people. It's an absolute disaster, isn't it? When the leaders are scoundrels. When the leaders are scoundrels. Now we expect there to be sin out there in the world, but it hurts so much more, it stings so much more when it comes from God's people, doesn't it? And especially from the leaders. Now this chapter gives us a a snapshot of this really dark time Uh, And it does it not just so that it can criticise those leaders, but so we can all reflect on ourselves, see if we are acting like scoundrels or not. If the ephod fits, (laughs) let's wear it. And to help us figure this out, the, the writer gives us a number of examples of their scoundrelness, if you like, of their scoundrelizing. I don't know what the right word is. But the first example of it is about food offerings. And so for us today, that might take a bit of explaining about what was actually happening and what was going wrong. All of this was taking place at the tabernacle. So that's the tent where God dwelt with his people. They didn't have the temple yet. This was the forerunner to that as a tent. And people would go there. They would make offerings to the Lord. Animals would be killed, burnt on the altar. And with some of those sacrifices... Once you offered it to God, you got to eat a bit of it. And the priests got to eat a bit as well. That was part of how they were paid for their work. So if you're interested, Leviticus 7 talks about which bits of the meat they get. It's the breast meat and the right thigh, if in case you care about that. But that's how it was meant to work. It's very clear who gets what and how it works. But that wasn't how it was working there in Shiloh. Verse 13 and 14 says, Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot 
and whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. This fork thing was not a Bible thing. This is not something that God had told them to do. In all likelihood, they'd already taken the extra bits, the Leviticus 7 bits, and this was extra. There are the people there innocently cooking their dinner before heading home. They're celebrating together. God's accepted our sacrifice. We're going to eat here and then we're going to go home. But then along comes the guy with the fork and he has his little lucky dip in the slow cooker or whatever it is. And with his three-pronged fork, he dips it in and he's going to get three massive juicy chunks out of it. It's stealing, isn't it? It's not his bit. He's stealing from the people. And yet it gets worse because they weren't just stealing from people, they were stealing from God. So look at verse 15. It says, Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Now God had said to burn the fat first. That was his bit of the sacrifice, the costliest bit, the prime cuts, if you like. But Eli's sons thought, yeah, that's my favorite bit as well. I don't want to waste it by boiling it. I mean, boiling it, really? And I don't want to waste it by giving it to God. What a waste that would be. No, give it to me, they demand. Their main job as a priest was to offer a sacrifice, but they've turned that whole thing into a racket, haven't they? They've turned it to be about themselves, that they get to have steak dinner every night. This is not about God, they're saying, this is about us. So give it to me, give to me what you should be giving to God. That is a a sure mark of a scoundrel, always making it about them. And then to top it all, if the poor person sticks up for themselves and says, Actually, should we look up Leviticus 7 and see what it says? We're supposed to burn the fat first. Well, then everything would get very ugly indeed. There'd be threats of violence. If you don't, I will take it by force, says the man carrying a trident. I mean, this is, this is awful. This is awful that that is how they were treating God's people. It's an appalling abuse. And that kind of behavior is still appalling Leaders who fleece the flock, that has no place in the church. That's one reason, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, that's one reason why we've just this week put in a policy on coercive and controlling behaviour. Because whether it's from leaders or from anybody, that kind of behaviour, it's all too prevalent in the church. It ought not to happen. And yet that is what it was like on Eli's watch. That's what it was like. You might remember the 80s movie, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I tried to see if all the titles for the sermons for this series could be films from the 80s. We've got Raiders of the Lost Ark in a few weeks' time, but I couldn't do it. Anyway, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. In it, Steve Martin and Michael Caine, they're two con men working the French Riviera. They're competing with one another to see who can swindle $50,000. And they do it by pretending to be respectable. So they'll pretend to be doctors. They'll pretend to be people of, uh, uh, who are worth respecting. They get people to trust them. They get people even to fall in love with them. Also, they can get what they want. Well, that could be Hophni and Phineas. They're two men 
out to rob the people and out to seduce the vulnerable. So skip down to verse 22. We see what else they've been up to. It says, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Again, as so often when there are people in power abusing their position, sexual sin is right there as well. These are people who were helping out at the tabernacle, a bit like kind of the welcome team that we have at church. They're standing on the door of the tent, probably the outer courtyard bit. We're going to hear tonight from, uh, from Rich in Psalm 84 about being a doorkeeper in the house of my God. That's what these women were. And Eli's sons took advantage of them. This was the first priest sex scandal, and sadly not the last. These are people who were a threat to the people they were meant to care for. They were perverting the worship of God. They were scoundrels. The whole thing was rotten. And the root of it all is there in verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord's. Literally, they did not know the Lord. They knew about him. They could talk about him. They would teach other people about him, but they didn't know him. Now, that is a challenge, isn't it? Do we know the Lord? Not just recite facts about him. Do we know him? Do we know his character? Do we have a relationship with him? Because Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they did not know God And so they didn't care about him. They didn't care what he said. They had no regard for him. That's why they felt able to sin quite so high-handedly, so openly, without any shame. Because they had no reverence for God. They didn't care whether what they did was what God said or not. And so they sinned against the people they were stealing from. They sinned against those women on the door. But their biggest sin was against God. Verse 17, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. See, the one whose opinion counts more than all says, that is very bad. It is very great. Because they were acting as though God was a small thing, an insignificant thing, as if worshipping him, obeying his word, that's, that's no big deal treating it with contempt, whereas sin is a big deal because the Lord is a big deal. Are we treating him that way? Eli was not a good man, as we'll see, but even he can tell that his boys are scoundrels, that there is a problem. So verse 23 and onwards, he tries to challenge them So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. Now, there's an understatement, isn't it? That is not good. Parents read the school report. This is not good. It's so bad. It is common knowledge. The word has got around. All the rumors are true. These guys are scoundrels. And so often, one of the biggest ways you can tell something isn't right is how someone reacts when it's pointed out. 
if Hophni and Phinehas had apologised, if they'd repented, shown remorse, things might have been different, but they don't. It says they ignore him. At the end of verse 25, his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now that is a very scary verse. Because it doesn't say what we think it should. It doesn't say God judged them because they did not listen. It says they did not listen because God was judging them. Isn't that interesting? There seems to have been a point at which their sin is locked in as their final answer. When they're so settled in their sin that the Lord determines, no, they have crossed a line they cannot go back from. Now, we don't know where that line is. We don't need to know what that, where that line is. We just need to know that we need to repent. If we are challenged on our sin, there is an urgency about it, about how we respond. We have to listen. We must turn away from it. We've got to repent of our sins of selfishness, of belittling God, our sexual sins. We need to do what these two young men failed to do, which was to listen, to hold our hands up, admit it, and repent. Because there will come a time when enough is enough. Hophni and Phinehas, they did not know the Lord. But the Lord knew them. And so he sent to Eli a prophet, someone who would tell him in no uncertain terms what he thought of the situation. So in verse 27, now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Look, this is what you need to hear. Not your own opinions, not your own self-justifications, but the big thing, what does God say about this? This is the first time in the book of 1 Samuel that God directly speaks. And as happens throughout the book, God's word comes crashing in to set things straight. It's a word that comes in and it should reassure us that the situation looked absolutely chaotic, that sin was winning, the leaders are dirty, rotten scoundrels, but reassures us that God is still at work. He's already on the move to bring about his purposes. He's going to root out that evil. He's going to replace it with something better. And so this unnamed prophet, this man of God, brings a word of judgment and a word of promise. We're going to see the, the judgment first, which is that the Lord will bring down the scoundrels. He absolutely will. The Lord will bring down the scoundrels. They are going to face justice. The man of God uh, points out how Eli and his sons have failed to live up to their holy calling. So in verse 27, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor's family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. So the Lord is saying, look, was I not clear? Was I not really clear when I, when I chose Aaron to be a priest back in Exodus? Was I not gracious enough by choosing that tribe of Levi that they would get to be the ones to come into my presence to serve me like that? Was I not generous enough in making sure that you would all get your food provided for, as if you were being invited to eat at my table? 
and you have taken that for granted and thrown it back in my face. So he goes on in verse 29, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? They were bullies and thugs, thieves, abusers, and Eli here is called to account because he didn't stop it. He gave them a bit of a ticking off, but he didn't remove them from office. They should have been removed. And he continued to benefit from what they were doing because as a family, they were fattening themselves, it says, fattening themselves night after night with all the best bits that belonged to God. When it gets to chapter 4, we're told that Eli was a very heavy man. And in his case, that was because he was participating in all of this. Every night he's got the fattest, juiciest bits. And in verse 13 of the next chapter, God's going to criticize Eli because he knew what they were up to and failed to restrain them. Here is a guy who is unable, unwilling to lead his family well, to put a stop to things. So judgment falls. Verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age, and you will see distress in my dwelling." Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. It's a terrible judgment, and he, and he says here that he is going to bring down the scoundrels. All those promises to Levi and his descendants, the promises that were flowing down through the generations, that is going to stop with Eli's branch of the family. That bit of the family tree is going to be cut off because character is so important. Character is so much more important than lineage. It is going to be those who honour the Lord that he will work through. And so these people will be cut down. And the proof will be when Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day. So watch this space as we go through 1 Samuel for when that happens. Because, of course, it will. All of these things exactly happen. We see distress in God's dwelling in a few few weeks' time when the Ark of the Covenant is stolen. We see disaster coming to Eli's descendants till all the way through to 1 Kings chapter 2 when King Solomon gets rid of the last one of Eli's family so they're never priests again. This is hundreds of years later and it says this was fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. So God is working his purposes out through the years, through the centuries, doing exactly what he said he would do to bring down those scoundrels. Now, this should send a message to us, shouldn't it? Loud and clear. Those who honour God, he will honour. Those who despise him will be disdained. That is a warning to us. That for those who behave like scoundrels, who ignore rebukes, will be brought down, won't escape justice. We have to turn back. We have to turn back to God. But it should also be a huge comfort, shouldn't it, that scoundrels will not get away with it forever. That those people 
who were intimidated by Hophni, those people who had their offerings stolen by Phinehas, they would see justice in the end. Now, when we are sinned against, whether that's by leaders or by anybody else, we don't always see justice in our lifetime. That is a painful reality that we need to live with. But we can rest assured that God sees, that God knows, and he will honour those who honour him. And one day, God will turn everything around so that Hannah's song from chapter 2 comes true. Chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. We're being told to look forward to a day when everything turns around and the proud are humbled and the humble are lifted up. Which leads us to that word of promise that the prophet brings. It isn't all judgments. Not only is the Lord going to bring down scoundrels, the Lord will raise up a faithful priest. The Lord will raise up a faithful priest. Verse 35. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. That is what we need, isn't it? When we're reading this chapter, it's so bleak, it's so horrible. We think, if only somebody would come and just do it properly. Can't we just have a faithful priest, someone who isn't doing it for themselves or following their own ideas, someone who does what is on God's heart and mind. The world is crying out for that, isn't it? For leaders who don't abuse their position. Well, we're told here that person is coming. And short term, that person was Samuel. Now, we haven't mentioned him much in the sermon so far, but there are little mentions of him sprinkled through the story. And every time it comes in, there's this sort of jarring contrast to the evil of Eli's sons. So just before we're told that Eli's sons are scoundrels in verse 12, in verse 11 we've been told, the boy ministered before the Lord. Then later on, just as we've been told about them stealing the best bits of the meat, Verse 18 gets thrown in, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. It wasn't all like this. There was this terrible stuff, but there was Samuel. Straight after those boys ignored their dad's rebuke, verse 26 mentions, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. Straight at the end of our passage, once judgment's been pronounced, chapter 3 will start like this. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord. Over and over and over, just dotted through the story, the writer is saying, don't forget about Samuel. Don't give up hope. I know it looks horrible that everybody in charge seems to be awful, but don't forget there is Samuel quietly, quietly growing up in the background. There is another way to this. It isn't sin or nothing. There is a faithful one coming. And we're given a little uh, contrast. Again, just before Eli has his failed confrontation with his sons, we get this different family portrait in verses 18 to 21. As we get one last glimpse of Samuel's mum. They don't feature in the story after this. As every year, 
His parents come to the tabernacle just as they did before. They may well have visited him at other times, but every time they come for that annual sacrifice, they keep honouring the Lord. So Hannah doesn't get her prayer answered and then ditch God. She continues to be faithful. They come every year. And whenever they visit, she brings sort of the next size up in his little priestly uniform. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? As we see, Eli's family are on the way down and Hannah's family, this poor, humble woman who was an absolute wreck just a chapter before, we see her being blessed. The Lord being gracious to them, it says. Meanwhile, verse 21, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now, I've got no idea what Samuel actually did. It is hard to think how a five-year-old would be a huge asset to the work in the tabernacle. Um, But he was learning. He was growing. God was forming him, just as he does with us, one day at a time. So yes, the leaders are scoundrels, but God is quietly raising up this faithful priest, slowly, under the radar, which is so often how God works, isn't it? When we look at our lives, we look at the situation, it just looks so bleak. We just don't know what God is doing quietly, slowly, under the radar. But this story points as well beyond Samuel, doesn't it? Just read verse 26 again. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. I don't know if that reminds you of anybody. From Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. And that is from the story where Jesus was a boy and his parents were making their annual visit to the temple. This is a deliberate link back to Samuel. It's a deliberate link back to show us Jesus is that faithful priest. Yes, Samuel was short-term, long-term and forever. Jesus is the faithful priest. He is the one the Lord was going to raise up as the ultimate answer to this problem of scoundrels. He would be the priest who didn't treat God with contempt, who didn't abuse, didn't exploit, didn't take from God's people the best of their offerings. Instead, he gave himself as the offering for their sins. We're going to be remembering that as we take communion later in our service, remembering that Jesus has given that ultimate sacrifice to deal with our sins. In verse 25, Eli has this conundrum. He says, if one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Who's going to do that? Who can stand between sinners and God when God is the one we've sinned against? Who can stand in the middle there? Well, Jesus can, can't he? Jesus can mediate. He can intercede. He can be the faithful priest. Only as fully human, fully divine, can he represent God to us and us to God and stand in the middle to deal with our sin. The priests at that time, they failed to live up to their calling. And so they forfeited their role, just like we fail to live up to our calling. There's a number of times in the New Testament talks about living up to our calling. It's this same idea. But in our time of darkness, there is this 
glimmer of light that the Lord has raised up a faithful priest to deal with it, the Lord Jesus. Someone who is even more unique and amazing than Samuel. Samuel was pretty unique. He was trained up as a priest. Next week we'll see he's given the job of a prophet. I'd say he was also the last of the judges. But Jesus goes one better. He is also, on top of all those things, he is the king. He is the anointed one this passage talks about, who Samuel was served before. So people back then would have looked at Samuel and gone, okay, there's hope for the future. This young lad is hope for the future. How much more should we see that as we look to Jesus? When the tackles come in from our own team, we look to Jesus. If you've been let down the way Israel was by its leaders, Jesus is the one who will not let you down. He is the one who is so different. If you're feeling convicted that deep down you're a scoundrel too, Jesus is the one that we need. So when this word of warning comes in, let's listen. Let's trust him. Because God will honour those who honour him. He really will. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this amazing way that you were working through such dark times to bring about real change, to raise up a new leader, not just Samuel, but the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you call sin out for what it is, that you will bring it down. So please help us to hear that and to repent now. Help us to look to Jesus our faithful priest who can deal with our sin. May we celebrate that now as we take the Lord's Supper in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.